0: the final installment in a four-week Christmas series that we have called The Doctrine of Christmas. And each Sunday morning, we have identified a a doctrine related to the Christmas season, the Christmas celebration, and tried to unpack that in helpful and practical ways. What I hope to have been one of the benefits of this series was to demonstrate how even doctrines that demand the most of us intellectually have real practical value in our personal lives. And we're not just gathered here to scratch some intellectual itch or to think about distant <laughs> concepts that have little bearing on our life. These are truths that are foundational to who we are as followers of Jesus Christ that are deeply impactful in every area of our life. The application that we've made of these doctrines are really just the beginning of the multitude of applications of these truths that might be made in our personal lives. There's there's some logical connectedness that exists with the doctrines that we've discussed. We started our Christmas series by talking about the incarnation of Jesus. Noting that just because we celebrate the birth of Jesus does not mean that we're celebrating the beginning of Jesus. That the Christmas season is about celebrating the fact That Jesus lays aside the glories of heaven, clothes himself in flesh, and dwells in our midst. Christ is God incarnate. He is the image of the invisible God. God has come down in the person of Jesus. Then on the second week together, we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. The throne of heaven was not vacated when God the Son came down in the person of Jesus. God is firmly positioned there in the Father. We talked about the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how the triune God is at work in the world for our salvation and for his glory. How the Father loved us so that he sent forth his only begotten Son to die in our place and be raised again the third day. That the gift of everlasting life and forgiveness of sin would be applied through the operation of his Holy Spirit. That our hearts might be open to discern the things of the gospel. That we might know him and treasure him and cherish him. That we might be born again by the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit actively involved in our salvation. Last week we talked about the virgin birth. Now it stands to reason logically that if God is going to clothe himself in flesh, that if God is going to interrupt human history for our salvation, that this would unfold in a miraculous way, and indeed it does. As conceived in the womb of Mary is the Christ child, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus lay aside the glories of heaven was born forth into this world as an infant, making himself vulnerable to all of the difficulties and challenges of life in the here and now, he does so sinlessly, he does so perfectly, that he might be our substitute in bearing the wrath of God against our sin. It really is a beautiful thing that God has done for us through his son, Jesus. Now this morning, I want us to talk about the person or the nature of Jesus Christ. Back when you were playing high school sports or when your parents were instilling in you good values for adulthood, they would say of work and athletics and academics, give 110%. Remember that? The reality is you don't have 110% to give. All any of us have in reality is a flat 100%, and usually we're not fired up about giving that. All you have is 100% to give. But that is not the case with Jesus. Jesus comes as a man, but that doesn't mean that he's only a man. Jesus comes rather as the God-man, 100% man and 100% divine, the only 200% person in the history of the universe. That's who Jesus is. He is the God-man. Jesus is fully divine, and Jesus is fully human, and he'll remain so throughout eternity the one who became the substitute for us, the mediator between an ungodly people and a three-time holy God. Jesus is the God-man. Now, I want us to think about that, to wrestle with that this morning, but I, I want you to understand that you're not going to fully comprehend this doctrine in the same way that you didn't fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. Just because you can't comprehend something doesn't mean that you can't apprehend something. You can get your arms around these truths. The doctrine of the Trinity should be treated the same way. There's an element of mystery there because God is beyond us. You cannot fully comprehend God because he is an incomprehensible God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is altogether unlike us in a gazillion different ways. He is holy, holy, holy. We are common, common, common. But we need to get our arms around these truths because, again, they are foundational. This, this is foundational truth upon which the gospel and all else ultimately and finally stands. So let's look this morning at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll find John unpacking this reality for us. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Unlike some of our passages in weeks past where the doctrine at hand was not the primary focus of the text, the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, is the primary focus of 1 John 1, 1 1-4. Verse 1 says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you. The eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's go before him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for its truth. Most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his high priestly work, for his substitutionary work, that he would take our place. We thank you for his grace, that we might take his place. Thank you, God, that we have, by the blood of Jesus, been clothed in his righteousness. Thank you for the gift that he serves to be to each one of us. God, I pray that on this sleepy, rainy holiday Sunday, that you would cause us, Lord, that we would, through the guidance of your Spirit, examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith, that we would consider deeply the truths of this text, the promises of the gospel, that we would look to Christ, that we would gaze upon him in such a way that our hearts might be naturally moved to make much of him. Thank you for your Son. Bless, Lord, we pray, the reading and the preaching of your word in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, we're talking this morning about the nature or the person of Jesus Jesus, fully God, and Jesus, fully man in one person, and so he remains forever. You've heard the statement, the saying, this doesn't make one iota of difference. The statement, is born out of a church history discussion or debate about the very doctrine that we're discussing here this morning. In the late 3rd century and early 4th century, the church was discussing how it was that they might give expression to what the Bible says about the nature or the person of Jesus. The difference in the two positions was the presence of a single iota The smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, like the I in in our alphabet, only without the dot over the top. Not one iota of difference. It turns out that in this particular debate, one iota made a world of difference. The presence of the iota was the difference in saying that Jesus is the same as God and saying that Jesus is similar to God. The church father, Athanasius, fought all of his life to ensure that that iota did not find its place into the confessional standards of the church, that it was abundantly clear that Jesus is God, not merely similar to God. In fact, there's an additional Christmas connection to the Council of Nicaea where this matter was settled and the discussion of the person of Jesus. There was believed by some to have been a Nicholas of Myra from whom the St. Nicholas tradition is born forth, the Santa Claus tradition. And it is believed by some, especially Greek Orthodox folk, that St. Nicholas of Myra rose and punched one of the Arians who taught a different position, one of the heretics at the Council of Nicaea. Now, even if you're a grouch and you don't get fired up about Christmas, there's something endearing about Santa Claus who punches heretics. (laughs) But this was the debate. This, This was where it all came down. It was... One iota that made all of the difference. When it comes to doctrinal truths that are this foundational, it turns out that an iota makes a world of difference. It is the difference between life and death, between light and dark, between heresy and orthodoxy. John helps a struggling church to understand the person of Jesus in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I believe he can help us this morning to understand something of the magnitude of what God has done for us in sending forth his son Jesus. And I hope to show you again this morning how incredibly practical these principles are for us. Note first this morning that Jesus was fully man. Even as we contend for the divinity of Jesus, and we should, it cannot be neglected that Jesus was fully man as he walked in our midst and remains so in eternity. Look at verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, What we have seen with our eyes and what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you. What John says there is that we have seen Jesus with our eyes we have heard Jesus with our ears. We have touched him with our hands. In fact, he says, we have observed, meaning we have gazed upon him intently. We have looked him over. We have examined him. We have walked with him. We have been with him. We have dined with him. We saw him. He was with us. He was around us. We enjoyed fellowship with with him, John says, make no mistake about it, this was not a collective spiritual hallucination. Jesus was no mere spirit. He was in, around us, in our midst, in the flesh. He was fully man." There seems like some redundancy about the way John describes it. He says, we've, we've seen him, and then we've observed him, we touched him, we've heard him, and then he even revisits the same verbiage in verse 3 of our passage where he says, we've seen and heard, and so we declare to you so that you might have fellowship with us. But John is very selective about the verbs he chooses to speak of, of Jesus by. One, one commentator on the passage itself notes that the variety of verbs used correspond to the various forms of witness attestation and ancient jurisprudence. In other words, John is giving a legal deposition here as to the historical person of Jesus. This This is, again, no spiritual hallucination. This is not a concept that we have conjured up. This is not the work of our imagination. Jesus, as a man, was in our midst. He walked among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. All that 1 John 1 through 4 really is, is a recapturing of John chapter 1, where the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word clothed Himself in flesh, and He dwelt in our midst. He was the light that had entered into the world that the darkness might be cast out. This is what John is saying again, that Jesus clothed Himself in flesh and walked in our midst for our salvation. No less man. Secondly, Jesus was fully God. Again, 100% man and 100% God. Now, again, you don't, you don't have to figure all of this out. The Western tendency, and by Western I mean the Western world, our tendency is to want to be able to systematize all things to, to be able to put everything in its nice, neat, organized category and understand it completely the way we do with math and science. That's how we're geared. We're, we're, we're born into that culture. It's, it, we're swimming in that. We're, we're unaware of its presence, but that's the reality for us. And the assumption is that the rest of the world operates that way, but the reality is it's really just us Westerners who think we have to have our arms around everything for them to be acceptable. Just because you can't understand something doesn't mean that it's not true. Here, you're going to have to live with some mystery. And I'll say to those of you who seek to be armchair theologians or, in reality, theologians, trained theologians, the sooner you're comfortable with living with an element of mystery when it comes to your understanding of who God is and how God is at work in the world, the better your Bible study times are going to go for you. There's some things about the character of God that you're not going to be able to understand, some things about the way that God is at work in the world that you're not going to be able to understand. And in trying to cram them into your system to make them fit your nice, neat boxes or categories, you're going to do violence to some doctrinal truth somewhere along the way. You're not going to be able to fully get this, but you you must embrace it. Remember what we said about the Trinity, what Dr. Rogers said about the Trinity? To try to understand it is to lose your mind, but to deny it is to lose your soul. The same might be said of the nature or the person of Jesus Christ. Fully man and fully divine. Jesus was not only fully man. The second point in our outline this morning is that Jesus was fully God. Go back to verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the word of life is Jesus, the word of life is the gospel, that life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you Paul's. John says, the the life of Jesus, the earthly life of Jesus. We saw him, we heard him, we observed him, we looked him over intently, we touched him with our hands, we shared food with Jesus. He was physically in our presence. That life was revealed to us. But again, that was not the beginning of the life, that was just the revelation of that life for us. He continues in verse 3. The eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us, what we have seen and heard, we declare to you. The life that we saw in the earthly ministry of Jesus was revealed to us out of the eternal life that is eternal life of Jesus, always with the Father eterni- eternally in eternity's past and, and in future. Jesus is fully God, the only begotten Son of God. He is God come down. He is Emmanuel, God with us, fully God and fully man. Now, these are the two main doctrinal premises that I want you to take away from our time together. But in our day and age where there seems to be a general disinterest in doctrine altogether, I want you to note that these doctrines make a difference. In fact, they make a great deal of difference. If, if, you're, if you're wondering how they make a difference, afford me a few moments here to illustrate. For instance, what difference does it make to say that Jesus was fully man? Well, it makes a great deal of practical difference in terms of how we understand Jesus and find great comfort and encouragement in what he's done for us. In Hebrews 4.15, the Bible says that in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus navigates the trials and the travails of life in the here and now, yet without sin. Now there's something to be said there and celebrated about his absolute perfection. Can you imagine that? Jesus from an infant to an adult man and without sin. H- having raised children, it is a phenomenal and mysterious thing for me to think about, an, an infant, a toddler, a young child, without sin. Some of you moms and dads can sort of bear witness with that. What does that look like? It'd be nice to know, wouldn't it? Ha- ha- having been an adolescent, a, a teenage boy, can you imagine managing those years and, and yet without sin? And an, ad- an adult male? Jesus was a carpenter and without sin. Now, in the old days, Brother Wade did a little carpentry work, and I I just want you to know that if there's a vocation in which it's difficult to be without sin, it's carpentry. And yet Jesus, in his humanity, is without sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, that we would find salvation in him. We like to say that we are not saved by works, lest any man should boast, but by faith, But the reality is we are saved by works. Only there's someone else's works. They're the works of Jesus Christ. The perfect life of Jesus is no less essential to your salvation than his sacrificial death. It's at the cross that he makes an offering of his perfect righteousness for your sin. But his perfect righteousness is a necessary part of the equation that is your salvation and mine. But there's more here. Jesus was, in every respect, tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin. That is, Jesus not only knows the difficulties that you're faced with on a constant basis by his omniscience. Omniscience meaning that he knows everything. There's nothing that Jesus does not know, past, present, or future. He's an all-knowing God. Jesus knows your challenges, your hardships, and your difficulties by his own personal experience. We don't have a distant, disconnected God who who cannot understand in the deepest, most meaningful of ways the hardships that we face in, in life in general. Death, temptation, sickness, pain. Jesus has quite literally been where we are, yet without sin. There's victory in that, isn't there? In Matthew 4, Jesus is driven into the wilderness and he's tempted over a period of 40 days while he prays and fasts and Satan comes and bombards him with with temptation. And he comes out of that temptation victoriously. There's victory for us over temptation because of what Jesus has done in his humanity for us. Y'all tracking with me this morning? We have a good God in the person of Jesus who in the flesh bears with the, 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 the highest of challenges that this world brings to bear. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says that he had to be made like his brethren. That is, it was essential, it was necessary that he would be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful high priest. There's a reason why the blood of bulls and goats are not sufficient to cover for your sin. Because we are not bulls and goats. One in our likeness, one after our image must have come to serve as our perfect substitute. He had to be made in our image. He had to be in our likeness in every respect so that he might become our perfect high priest. And so Christ clothes himself in flesh, dwells in our midst and does so in absolute perfection. It makes a difference that we understand that Jesus was fully man. In addition, it makes a difference that we understand that Jesus was fully God. It would take an infinite God to bear with the infinite weight of our sin debt. No mortal man could bear with this. At the flood of Genesis 6, the fullness of God's wrath is poured out against creation, and all the earth perishes save Noah, his family, and a band of critters that boarded the ark with him. At the end of the age, the fullness of God's wrath is poured out against the sinfulness of this world as God comes not in a judgment of water but of, of fire. And at the turning point of history, the fullness of God's wrath is poured out on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God against our sin, Jesus drinks the cup down to the last drop, makes atonement for our sin. The wrath of God is satisfied there. No mere mortal man could bear with such a judgment but Jesus does both in his humanity and his divinity there's a reminder in Jesus's divinity that only God can save us from our sin you cannot save yourself from your sin you cannot save someone else from their sin never speak of your evangelistic efforts as saving someone you can never save anyone You can't save yourself, let alone anyone else. Jonah said salvation is of the Lord. The divinity of Jesus reminds us that only God can save us, that Jesus has done for us something that only Jesus could do. What you need to happen in your life in order for you to have the hope of everlasting life and the forgiveness of your sin is something you cannot manufacture on your own. It's something that you cannot produce. We speak so carelessly of conversion or salvation in our culture. We talk about someone growing up or wising up or maturing. But you don't in reality need to grow up, wise up, or mature. You need to be born again. And only Jesus can do the new birth. He holds the hearts of mankind in His hand. Only Jesus can turn the human heart. Jesus has done for us in His divinity what only Jesus could do. If we've learned nothing in our study in the book of Exodus, we've learned of our need for a mediator, someone to bridge the gap that exists between us as an unrighteous people and a holy God who is perfect in His justice. Moses could do that in part, right? He was the first mediator, so to speak. But Moses' work was impartial. Moses stood between God and man in a sense. He could bring the people to God through the sacrificial system that God had given him. But only Jesus could bring God to the people. Jesus brings God to us in that he is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. Moses makes the request, let me see your glory, God. I want to see your face. He sees the backward parts of God's glory and his countenance has changed. It's a dangerous thing for Moses to be brought into the presence of God. But Jesus brings to bear in this cruel and wicked world the bright radiance of his great glory. He is the image of the invisible God that his people might look upon him for salvation and for grace and for mercy. Moses might have brought the people to God in some partial kind of way, but Jesus brings God to the people. And by virtue of Jesus bringing God to the people, he has secured it so that he might bring his people to God. Not in a partial sense, but in its fullness. You see what I mean? That these doctrines make a world of difference in our life. And to neglect them is to neglect the, the maintenance, the upkeep, the nourishment of your very soul. I think there's, a, there, there's, a, there's another truth here that I, I think we need to talk about just briefly. This is just put a parenthesis here. The whole message of the book of Hebrews is to persevere in the faith. And at the center of that first section of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3, there's a single command, just one imperative, that seems the linchpin to our persevering in Jesus. And You're not going to like this because you want action steps. You want me to tell you nine ways to persevere in your faith, and you want them to be active type things that you can uh, uh, sort of implement in your personal life, tools that you can employ. But it, it's not that way, so hang on. The Bible simply says, consider Jesus. Meditating on the magnitude of God's grace toward us through Jesus is essential to your persevering in the faith. If you'll think about Jesus, it's just that plain and simple. If you'll think about Jesus, it will have the effect of of holding you fast through the difficult and dark seasons of your life. When the temptation comes, think about Jesus. When death and disease and sickness come into your life, you think about Jesus. When, when heartache interrupts your life, you think about Jesus. We, my wife and I, we were reflecting back on 2019. And I don't know that until a couple of weeks ago, we had really given much thought to how difficult 2019 had been for us. And this is not a cry brother way to river kind of deal. God has really been good to us through this year. Um, my, in this year that we started the year losing my granny, and then uh, we we had our first uh, the, our foster baby come into our home, which is that's a game changer, you know, brand new baby. And then um, Brandy's grandfather died. Both of these, my grandmother and her grandfather, they're the linchpins of our family. Um, we're praying through and, and trying to discern God's will in, in terms of. Uh, coming here as your pastor leaving behind a former ministry a move away from uh, my hometown had been my hometown for my whole life a two-hour move kids transitioning schools and everything changing in our life there's just been a bunch of stuff heavy emotional stuff that's happened in our life And we say things like i don't know how people that don't know jesus get through some of these things and I'll, I'll go further than that. I don't know how people who do not believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things get through in life. Like that, every detail of our life, the heartaches and the highs, the lows and the, and the moments of victory. I, I believe all of those things are ordered by God for his glory and for our good. And I don't know how you're going to function in this world without a hearty confidence that God is on the throne. That Father, Son, and Spirit are on our side, actively working for our good and for His glory. Are you all with me this morning? If, If you're looking for an answer as to how you can persevere through the difficulties of your life, it's really very simple. Consider Jesus. Just look to Jesus. Think about the magnitude of what God has done for us that we might have salvation through Jesus Christ that God would clothe himself in flesh, walk in our midst, live with perfection, die on the cross that we might have everlasting life. John says we've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him, we bear witness to him. We we, we want you to know that at a very real moment in time in history, God came down. God came down. You all with me? So we get disconnected, I think, sometimes because we're familiar with the story. It seems distant from our reality, but there's a very real moment in time in history when God clothes himself in flesh, is born into a Bethlehem manger, walks in perfection in this world, walks in perfection in this world without sin, dies on the cross in our place, is buried in a barred grave on the third day, is raised again at a very real moment in time in history. John begins the text, what was from the beginning, what we've heard and what we've seen, again, at a very real place in time in history. The historical markers here are everywhere. This happened at a very specific time in history. This is not a fairy tale beginning. God sent his Son, fully man, fully divine, that he might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We might have hope and rest in him. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Because of Jesus, we have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and other believers through the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, John says, What we've seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm writing these things. I want you to know of my testimony so that you can have fellowship with us, so that we can have fellowship with one another, and that together we can have fellowship with both the Father and the Son, that fellowship coming through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our access to fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and the Spirit. Furthermore, Jesus is the point of access to fellowship with other believers. So in all likelihood, over the next week or so, you're going to be contemplating ways that you can be brought or draw nearer to God in the new year. You'll think of resolutions that might be made. You'll think of spending more time in prayer, spending more time reading your Bible. But you must know on the front end that our access to the Father is through Jesus Christ. That, that, that being brought near to God begins in Jesus. Like I'll encourage you over the next few weeks to set a Bible reading plan. But you must know that your ability to understand the Bible that's open before you is contingent upon the work of God's Spirit within you, which is provided for you because of the shed blood of Jesus at the cross. That the Father's wrath against you has been pleased. That fellowship has been rejoined or reconciled. That the Father was glad to send forth the Spirit into your heart. It begins with Jesus. We'll, We'll encourage you to set times of the day when you're spending time with God in prayer. But understand that the prayerful access that you have to the Father has been made possible through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Christ dies and the veil is rent, and access is granted. That the Spirit, when we don't know how to pray, intercedes for us with groanings and utterances that we cannot comprehend. We have the Spirit available to us and abiding in us because of what Jesus has done for us. It all begins in Christ. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We have fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit because of what Christ has done for us in his flesh as the God-man. Note that John speaks here of our fellowship one with another, and this is a critically important theme, not just in our passage, but in all of 1 John. John says at one point there were some members of the church who went out from the church. And they went out from us, John said, because they were not of us, that it might be made manifest that they never were in the first place. Their departure from the church, their departure from the truth proved that they were never genuinely a part of of the body of Christ. Because fellowship with the saints is, is not about the technicalities of membership. Fellowship with the saints is about fellowship with the spirit. We are bound together by the work of God's Holy Spirit, that Spirit available to us yet again through the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. We have fellowship together because of Jesus. Only Jesus could pull this hodgepodge of people together. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world. You can go anywhere in the world and find fellowship with believers in Jesus because of Jesus. We're not here together as a local church because we share hobbies, interests, political parties, ethnic backgrounds, music taste, whatever the case would be. We're not even here because we live in similar neighborhoods. We are here Because God has saved us from our sin, commissioned us that as the local church, we would be a mission-sending outpost that his kingdom would be expanded across the street and around the world. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Now, we have little microcosms of this in our culture in the South. SEC football can do this a little bit until our team doesn't make a bowl or they cheat. Or our coach doesn't make the right call. Then we throw things at one another in the stands. And if we're going to be really judgment day, honest with ourselves, sometimes the church throws things at one another in the church. But the reality is when our focus is on Jesus, when Jesus is is the focal point of our fellowship, that's that's when we're at our best at expanding his kingdom across the street and around the world. Again... The admonition of the scripture is not a list of nine things that you need to implement or do in your personal life actively or physically in order that things might go well. It's as simple as focusing on Jesus. Because of Christ, we have fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit, and with one another. There's a fourth thing in our text, just quickly. In Jesus, our joy is made complete. The first of a handful of purpose statements are given in verse 4 of our passage where John says, I write these things to you in order that our joy might be made complete. He might have also said in order that your joy might be made complete. John says, until I know that you understand these essential gospel truths, I cannot be at rest. I cannot enjoy the joy that I might otherwise have unless or until I know that you have understood the full magnitude of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. May God give us that kind of restlessness, one for another and for the nations. May we not rest. May we fail to find perfect peace until all the world knows that Jesus saves sinners from their sins. But there's another level of truth here. A, a level of truth that, that, that's really personal and applicable, perhaps for, for many of you this morning. You cannot have real joy in your life apart from Jesus. And I always hate when preachers come to passages like this and they want to distinguish between being happy and being joyful. If you are joyful in Jesus, you will be happy. They, I'm not sure what the goal in trying to separate happiness and joy really is all about other than trying to stave off Edenism But if you're joyful in Jesus, you'll be happy. And I just want to say in the words of John that I have seen and I have heard and I have touched with my hands virtually everything the world has to offer you that it promises will bring you joy and peace and satisfaction and fulfillment. And I have seen with my eyes and I have heard with my ears and I have touched with my hands the goodness that God has afforded me in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this morning, money-back guarantee, that what I have in Jesus, that what many in this congregation have in Jesus, this world cannot afford. It can't provide you with these things. At the end of your efforts to find satisfaction and fulfillment and peace and gladness in what this world offers you in counterfeit forms, you'll only find yourself jaded and frustrated and in worse shape than you were in the very beginning. What Jesus has done for us cannot be replicated. Taste and see that the Lord our God is good. There are very few people who ever have the experience of achieving or, or getting what they had hoped for all their life. I can't imagine what that experience might look like. I, this has never been a problem for me personally, but I, I, I watch people on television and read of people in uh, news articles, and I think, I, w- I, wonder what, I wonder what that's like. Several years ago, I was on a, a chaper helping to chaperone a youth trip. I must have lost a bet or something like that. And, uh, and and it was a New Year's Eve deal, and they had this guy. He was going to jump like a school bus or something, like a bunch of school buses. They're always jumping something. And, and and so he did his thing, and he was successful. And we were all watching and gathered around the television. And, uh, and they interviewed the brother when it was over with, and he was almost dejected. A- and it was the reporter asked the question, and she didn't mean it to be as negative as it came off, but it was, well, what do you do now? And he really didn't have an answer. And and I just want to encourage you, for those of you, you're laboring toward ends that you believe will bring you fulfillment in this life, that when you get there, you're, you're only going to find yourself to be dejected and as empty and jaded and frustrated as you were at the beginning of your journey. But what Jesus offers us in the gospel what Jesus offers us in the gospel is good. Our joy is made complete in Jesus. So, my invitation to you this morning is this to stop chasing after the things of this world, to stop laboring under the heavy burden of personal or cultural or social or even family pressures, and just come and taste and see that our God is good.